Welcome back to Bad Boys and Beyond. We are your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. Today we are covering, well, we're covering our first coach ever. We've never covered a coach. We've done players and we've done movies. Today we're covering Charles Jerome Daly. Uh, John Sally calls him Daddy Rich. You may know him as Chuck Daly, coaching Pistons coaching legend, the man who brought this team two championships. This was uh, this was a Keith one. Keith wanted to cover Chuck. I'm down for it. Keith, uh, is this going to be a fun episode today or what? I think this is going to be a, a fantastically interesting episode. I, I think there's there's a lot of small details that people don't realize about the, the, the Chuck Daly era in, in Detroit. Are we going to talk about Chuck's hair at all? There's not much to talk about. They only had one state. It was just just perfectly all, all together. You Phenomenal. Just, yeah, <laughs> you can put you can park the man behind like a seven forty seven. Uh, I'm upon takeoff, and his hair would not move. He may be personally injured in some other way, <laughs> right. but the hair would be intact, fully intact. It's like it, him and Huey Lewis both have the same haircut, yep. and it's indestructible. Uh, and here I sit bald and, uh, yeah, that's how I feel. Uh, but if I was going to buy a wig, maybe I would buy one that looks like that. I don't know. Or I'd get it from Maury's wigs from God, from Goodfellas because they don't fall off, not during a windstorm or when you get into the pool. It's a great movie. You guys should all check it out again. Watch it. Anyways, uh, we're going to talk about Chuck Daly today, but before we do that last week, when uh, when we last talked, the NBA draft was about to happen. Now it has happened. The Pistons went home with two first-round picks in uh, Marcus Sasser of uh, Wisconsin. Did I get that right? No, Houston. Sorry. No, Marcus, Houston. Yep, Marcus Sasser of Houston and uh, first-round pick Osser Thompson of Overtime Elite. And uh, the Pistons did uh, draft a player from the University of Houston. It's just not the one people thought it was going to be. No. Nope. And, you know, Cam Whitmore almost almost continued to fall at, right into their laps at 31, and it just didn't happen, and, and that's okay. Apparently there's some medical issues that I wasn't privy to uh, previous to the draft. So, yeah, so that's what you got. Oscar Thompson, what are your thoughts on Oscar, Keith? I, I've only watched highlights and a little bit of film at this point. I don't know much about the G League players. It, this is all still kind of new to me. The, the the OTE, the Overtime Elite League, which is – it's basically an attempt to replicate what the what Europe has in uh, European soccer. And I think they do it a little bit for basketball too where they have these youth academies uh, or pro leagues essentially masquerading as youth academies where they're developing uh, teenagers simply for professional sports and nothing else. Uh, I, I think there's quite a bit of talent in, in the OTE. It is a very new league. Uh, certainly uh, the, the, the Thompson twins, Amen and Asar were the, were the stars. They're the first uh, blue chippers to really sign on, but it's not like they were the only players in. Uh, everyone makes a big deal that they were the oldest players there at 19, 20 years old and going up against uh, 16 I think I believe it's a 16 to 20 league I think th those are the age limits so they were going up against some kids that were high school juniors but these were also kids that were four and five star high school juniors as well as seniors as well as some kids that would have been playing high level college basketball last year so it's not like they were going up against uh, uh children let's get that out of the way right. uh secondly uh, Asar Thompson at the time that the Pistons selected 
I think he was clearly the highest uh, potential pick on the board. Cam Whitmore, I think, had close to the same physical potential. But as you said, there were some medical issues. Also, there were some definitely some personal issues and things that came back that teams definitely some I'm guessing some just flat out took him off their board. They were just worried about it. Uh, Sar has those has no such issues. He's the opposite. He is by all means a, a gym rat. Uh, very well spoken, uh, very well liked by pretty much everybody that's ever been associated with him. Both Thompson twins uh, just come off as these shining, glowing uh, uh, 20 year old kids that look like they're ready for professional life. And it, look, you, you couldn't be any happier to have that kind of a player for the Pistons. Uh, aside from that, Asar, much like his brother, an incredible athlete, even for an NBA uh, player, he is an incredible athlete, 6'7", seven, 7-foot seven wingspan, uh, pretty good build. Uh, unlike his brother, he is he excels more on the defensive end of the floor right now than on offense. Uh, he he is a bit of a scorer. He, he has grown up pretty much his entire life playing off the ball while his brother Amen played point. So, of course, his skills developed a little bit differently. And right now, I think... He's in a great spot because I'm really hoping that unlike the last four or five draft picks that Troy Weaver has selected in the first round, I hope they can afford him the chance to to develop slowly uh, in a sixth or seventh man role off the bench. I would, would really like them to go out and get two legitimate starting forwards, not put too much pressure on Asar to be that guy right away. Because I think down the road, uh, if you manage him properly, I think he could every – I think he could develop into that third star uh, after Kate Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, hello, even a fourth star. Uh, Jalen Duran has that potential too. I, I think the ceiling with the Pistons is super high. I think we need to be patient a little bit, but I don't think that excuses Troy Weaver from trying to build the team up. He absolutely should. Uh, no, but it, no doubt. Yeah. I, I'm very happy with Asar. He's exactly who I would have picked uh, the way that the draft played out. Uh, Marcus Sasser, I'm going to get into him real quick. Uh, he reminds me a lot of uh, Devion Mitchell uh, with the Kings, but I think he has, he is a much better uh, jump shot, but he is an undersized guard that is just a tenacious defender. He plays about six inches taller than he really is. Uh, he will annoy the, the living crap out of you. He is not the greatest a uh, playmaker necessarily. He's not, he's not a guy that's a pure floor general. I know some Piston fans compared him a little bit to Lindsey Hunter. I don't think he's quite that rigid. He has a lot of uh, wiggle to his game. Excellent shot creator, excellent uh, deep shooter. Apparently he just blew away everybody in the combine and workouts uh, with the shots he was capable of making consistently from deep. I, I think that Troy Weaver, who by the way, traded multiple second round picks to move up and select him at 25. I think they definitely saw that uh, a role for him on this team moving forward. I think he's definitely going to be in the rotation to start the season, maybe even before uh, Asar. He's he's several years older than Asar. He should be. Uh, but I, what I find interesting is, does this mean, because, look, the, the Pistons only have so many guards that they can play. If they're healthy, uh, Killian Hayes uh, may or may not play. Uh, Alec Burks may or may not play. Look, Alec Burks is going to play. He's better than Killian Hayes. So right. it, it's interesting to see what the plan is. I don't I anticipate both of those players being on the team to start next season. Uh, I think one of them is going to get traded. It may actually be Burks I, because he has legitimate trade value, but I can't speak to that right now. 
Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think everybody automatically assumed that when Sasser was picked that it was Killian Hayes that was going to be out of here. But you're right, Alec Burks is has scoring ability that is, you know, much, much farther beyond what Hayes can do. And I think a championship level team might look at that and see, you know, see something they could use off the bench. Uh, I, I like I like Sasser a lot. I I I I hope that you know he winds up becoming a much better player than Killian Hayes, and I think that he has the ability and the talent to do so. As far as Thompson goes, you know it wasn't what I initially wanted, but you know there was a lot of things I took away from uh from from him that that made me optimistic about the pick. The one you know the biggest thing was that he is he is a defensive stalwart. Like he that's that's where his bread gets buttered more than any really any part of his game. Um, he has athleticism. He can shoot the three pretty well. Uh, he can do it with a hand in his face too. I, you know, that's what I've seen on the video. Like he, he handles defensive pressure well, but I just, I don't know. You know, he's such a young, such a young kid. And, and, uh, and, and I know that overtime elite is playing against really good high school players. I just would have preferred if they had taken someone from like G League at night instead. You know, I, I I understand that they weren't there, and I know that there's a lot of potential for both Osser and Amon, but uh, and everything might just work out. I might just be worried like I, a normal Pistons fan is, but I guess we'll we'll have to see. I did find it particularly interesting that Amon Amon Thompson is playing for the Houston Rockets, who once again are for some reason locked in a feud with the Detroit Pistons. The, the uh, NBA scriptwriters keep trying to make Detroit and Houston happen. Stop trying to make Detroit and Houston happen. Well, eventually, you know, Houston scares the hell out of me because I think they're building. I mean, look, I know I, I, look, I don't think Jalen Green is nearly as good as a lot of people think Jalen Green is, especially Jalen Green. Uh, he, he's pretty sure he's the best. Um, but I look at that to- that team. I look at uh, uh, I look at Smith. I look at uh, uh, Shangoon, and now Almond Thompson plus Jalen Green plus a, a whole bunch of money. I mean, a whole bunch of money. I think they have more money to spend in free agency than anybody. Not that this is a super great free agent pool or anything like that, but like I think the the Rockets could certainly be ahead of the Pistons uh, at this point. And, and by a, a decent margin. But I guess we'll see. I don't know. Pistons have a lot of great players, a lot of hope. Cade Cunningham's coming back. We'll see what happens. Um, there's one, there's two other things I want to talk to you about before we get to Chuck Daly, and we'll we'll wrap those in real quick. There's some rumors going out. Of course, it's just rumors, and you have rumors, and the NBA are like peanut butter and jelly around this time. But the, the Pistons are reportedly looking into Grant Williams and Max Struess. And those just seem like horrible ideas to me. I, I mean, that's like the bare minimum of what you could do. Why would it? I, 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 I don't see it with Grant Williams. I don't know what it is that people see in that guy. I don't see it in his game. Maybe he's a decent defender. Max Struess had a really good playoffs, but he hasn't done anything regular season to prove that he can capitalize off that. So. All right, Grant Williams, first off, I, I think his game is I, – I love his skill level and his versatility. He can play power forward or small ball center, even some small forward. He's got some good, really good defensive versatility. Uh, he, he's very much a quarter three specialist, but he's very, very good at it. 
where I get off the train with Grant Williams uh, is his personality. I just think is incompatible with winning basketball, which is interesting considering he's been on arguably the most successful team in the NBA, even though they haven't won a championship. Uh, They've been either the conference finals or the finals pretty much every year that he's been there. Here's the problem though. I, I don't think they're getting there because of him necessarily in this past season. Uh, he grumbled about his minutes. He grumbled about his role in the team. And then you had the thing in the conference finals where in game two, uh, he, he goes full Spike Lee and, and trash talks uh, the best player in the Miami Heat, uh, Jimmy Butler, into torching him and essentially uh, putting them in a 2-0 hole, losing both games at home. And they were trying very hard not to play Grant Williams uh, in the playoffs. I think there's a reason for that. I, I just everything from a from a personality and chemistry standpoint about Grant Williams rubs me the wrong way. If he were a completely different player with the same body and the same skill set, I would absolutely want him on the Pistons. I just I do not. People think that just talking trash makes you a Piston. It doesn't. You have to do it with a level of uh, intelligence that in maturity. It's a mind game. You have to back and, it up too. You know, yeah, the one the one getting played with in the mind games is Grant Williams. He's the one talking too much. Like I don't want a role player talking to a superstar. That's not how you get it done. Uh, Max Drews, I'm actually very interested in. Uh, he is a lights out stretch four. Uh, does not do a whole lot else. Uh, he has some decent athleticism. He can score a little bit on the break, but for the most part, uh, he he is a guy that, that will just pick and pop you to death. Uh, beat you with trail threes. He is one hell of a stretch for. I, I don't know the kind of money that they would be talking about. They have the Pistons have thirty million to spend. I would not be happy if they spent even half of it on Max Struess. But he is the type of player that I would definitely. The Pistons need to stretch for whether it's a starter or not. The Pistons need a guy that can a play power forward and b shoot the three at a high level. That's just it's a piece to the puzzle that they need. In, in certain situations. So I don't, I don't mind Max Truce at all. I, I would very much, <laughs> I would very much like them to go after, you know, some of the bigger names. Uh, Cam Johnson. Yeah. Cam Johnson. Uh, I think that's the top of everybody's list. If the Nets are willing to let him go. Uh, Austin Reeves. I don't think the Lakers are letting him go, but given that the new CBA limits the the times team can, can take to match an offer to, I think one day, I would be totally okay with throwing uh, Austin Reeves a hundred million dollar deal because I think he's that good. And I know Troy Weaver, Troy Weaver wanted to draft him uh, a couple of years ago. So I know Troy Weaver likes him, <sighs> but look, uh, free agency is in a couple uh, is a couple of days away. None of us really know what's going on in Troy Weaver's head. I'm actually very excited for our next episode when we can uh, get in with our, our guest, uh, Bryce Simon and talk about it. Uh, but but initially, I think the Pistons needs, whether it's by trade, free agency, whatever, uh, they need forwards. They need forwards badly, and they need a specialist uh, that can play the four and shoot the ball. That That is as clear-cut a need as I think any team has this offseason. The good news is they don't need to sign a whole lot of players, but they have a lot of money to throw at one or two players that they really like. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what they do. I think, you know... Um... You know, Cam Johnson is obviously the the dream. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Jeremy Grant comes back to Detroit. I really would not be shocked at that at all. And then you wind up getting Jalen Duran essentially for free. So 
that's uh that that's that's a dream and then okay the last thing i want to talk about real quick super fast these have you seen these pictures of Cade cunningham that went around yeah it's, stop doing that people it's, it's so stop, stupid stop, stop, so stop dumb the fact that so many people like believed that that was real is is just insanity it just really shows how stupid social media can be sometimes and it's just i just couldn't believe it like we literally just saw Cade at Monty's presser like two weeks yeah. ago, and he looks great. And we've seen pictures on his Instagram and videos and whatnot. The guy is in phenomenal shape, probably the best shape of his career. For some reason, somebody wanted to make it look, I think it's Ball Sack Sports. It's always Ball Sack Sports on Twitter. They put uh, out this, these... this one. This was an individual member of Pistons Twitter. Oh, was sure. it? Okay. All right. Because well, this this person doctored a, an article from James Edwards III to make it look like it was an official thing and attached his name to it. And that was, I thought, so far over the line, I couldn't even see the line anymore. That okay. that, that made me angry. And well, it, now, didn't really, yeah. it, it didn't ruin my day. It, it ruined James Edwards' day because he had to deal with people asking him if it was true or not. Yes. Like, look, it, this is how you get sued for, for slander or libel. Like, that you that is not okay to take a professional writer and, and doctor something in their name and put it out because you think putting an official name on it is going to get you more attention for your your troll like stop it just just yeah. stop it i know no one's going to listen to me but i i found that particularly just disgusting uh, yeah. there's nothing funny about that stop it not at all now i'm even more mad because i did not know that they were you know that they were doing that to james and that's a friend of mine and also someone who shares the same profession as I do. And I can tell you that this job is, while it may be like the coolest thing in the world to cover sports, like it, it, this is our livelihood, man. We, you can't, you can't be going around messing with our stuff like that and, and taking food out of our mouth and whatnot. Um, but yeah, no, James is a phenomenal writer. He would never print anything like that regardless, even if it were true, but uh, all right, let's, uh, let's jump into it. Let's, go all the way back to Puxatani and we're not talking about the groundhog talking about the head coach of Puxatani high school Chuck Daly is it Punxsutawney or Punxsutawney I thought it was Punxsutawney I think it's just however it rolls off your yeah, it's just one talk. of those weird long, <laughs> yeah. yeah Pennsylvania town names yeah uh yeah so Chuck Daly starts out uh, his high school coaching career after serving in the armed forces I want to say, I don't know if he went to Korea. I think it was around that time, though. And he, he starts out coaching high school basketball. Uh, to he, he coached his team to a modest record at, at Punxsutawney High School. Uh, it, it wasn't anything. He, he wasn't racking up state titles or anything, but he, it was enough to get him a, a look as a Duke assistant where he was at in the early uh, to mid-1960s. And from that point on, he got his first head coaching start at Boston College uh, in the late 60s. I think he was only there for a few years. But this is really when uh, Chuck Daly's head coaching career takes off is when he gets offered the job at Penn. And by the way, he succeeded uh, not the coach before him, but two coaches before him was a man named Jack McCloskey. So coaching Penn uh in that same circle they both knew each other uh at that point uh his the highlight of his time at Penn he got them to the elite eight in 1972 uh 
Uh, in six seasons, they were 74 and 10. He only lost 10 games in the Ivy League in, in six years, 74 and 10. Uh, but obviously, being a head coach in the Ivy League, it's great. But Chuck Daly has always wanted to do bigger and better. Uh, one, always been a guy that has, has wanted to advance his career to the top level. And he finally gets that uh, opportunity at, when the Philadelphia 76ers hire him to be an assistant in 1978 uh, as their defensive coach, which should surprise nobody. That's how we know him. The... Uh, I think the, the most memorable game, though, uh, unfortunately, is probably game six of the 1980 NBA Finals when the, the Lakers, without Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, throw a curveball at the Sixers by starting Magic Johnson at center. And all of all of their defensive schemes just go right out the window because you have the center now running the offense and running fast breaks and scoring 42 points. And there's little videos of, of Chuck Daly just like slamming his clipboard and kicking up his feet. It, it's actually kind of funny to look at. Uh, but that that was the, the Sixers were very good defensively every year that Chuck Daly was there. That that was his bread and butter. Uh, that one game aside, Chuck was always been like a super animated guy on on the sideline, yeah. and and you'll see more of that later on in this story. But speaking of the 1980 Lakers, did you see the? preview for season two of uh of winning time i did uh, i i'm very interested to see how this goes because it looks like they're spanning several years yeah. in that one season where the first season just spanned that first lakers year uh magic's rookie year so i'm i'm interested to see how they how they time skip through this uh but look i i loved season one of winning time uh, even though they did take some factual liberties with a lot of stuff uh, I thought it was all in good fun, and I'm looking forward to season two. Yep, same. Let's go over to okay, Cleveland, so, Keith. Take us to Cleveland. Yeah, so this is the best and worst year of Chuck Daly's life because this is the very first time uh, Chuck Daly had ever been offered a top job in the NBA, coaching the, the toughest league in the world with the greatest athletes. And unfortunately, it is – it is with the Cleveland Cavaliers, who were the undisputed, even with the Clippers, the Cavs in the early 80s were the undisputed worst franchise in the NBA. They are the reason that we have the stipend rule, Ted stipend rule today, which states that you cannot trade draft picks more than in consecutive years in the future. You cannot do it. That's because that's what the Cavs did uh, at the behest of owner Ted Stipend, who was a maniac. And... Uh, there was a lot of rumors that Ted Stipen was telling Chuck Daly what he wanted done on the court and giving him instructions on how to coach. And I don't think that Chuck Daly regretted it a whole lot when the Cavaliers fired him at the exact halfway point uh, before the all-star break after 41 games, uh, the Cavs were nine and 32 at the time. I don't think anyone thought any, uh, thought, thought that Chuck Daly was being dealt a, a bad hand. Uh, the Cavs were just all around terrible. They didn't have a whole lot of talent, even though they had some, but it was just, it was an entirely toxic atmosphere uh, with Cleveland at the time. I don't think any coach would have won a whole lot of games there. Uh, Chuck Daly described it uh, as 93 days out of Holiday Inn. That, that was his entire coaching career at Cleveland lasted 93 days, uh, pretty much living out of a Holiday Inn the entire time. In Cleveland, I cannot imagine a more miserable existence for an NBA head coach 
No. Yeah, I mean, geez. Holiday Inn. And it wasn't even a Holiday Inn Express. It's just a regular <laughs> Holiday Inn. Yeah, I don't know if Chuck meant that literally or figuratively. Like, yeah. if he was literally just staying at a Holiday Inn the entire time he was in Cleveland because <laughs> he, he wasn't going to put down roots. Uh, but neither one would have surprised me. Well, uh, his as you mentioned, only 93 days in Cleveland. And then his next move is going to be uh, to get hired by a guy who preceded him at Penn. As we mentioned before, Trader Jack is going to go out and uh, get himself Chuck Daly. But, Keith, you were saying that Chuck wasn't exactly their first choice. Yeah, and this is the first thing I think people don't know about the, the Chuck Daly uh, time uh, era in Detroit. Chuck Daly was not Jack McCloskey's first choice. He was not his second choice. He was not his third choice. He was at best his fourth choice. And there were a lot more than four names on Jack McCloskey's list. I, I know Jack McCloskey, I had already known Chuck Daly from their, their time in the Penn coaching circles. They're both from Pennsylvania. They're, they're, they're both uh, very, I would say similar age. Uh, look here. The bottom line is this, uh, Speaking of winning time, if we're going to bring that around full circle, Jack McCloskey's first choice to coach the Pistons in the offseason of 1983 was actually Jack McKinney, uh, who was at that time coaching the Indiana Pacers, and Jack McKinney turned them down. And his second uh, choice was uh, Jack Ramsey, who was actually Jack McKinney's uh, mentor in Portland, and Jack Ramsey turned them down. And his third choice uh, reportedly was Phil Johnson, who I think was an assistant somewhere, but he had previous head coaching experience with the, with the Kings and Phil Johnson turned him down. Those three things we know, we know that they had already offered the job to three different head coaches, all of which turned down the Pistons job because the Pistons at the time were just a, uh, even though they had a lot of talent, they hadn't made the playoffs in forever. Uh, they hadn't had any success in Detroit in, ever. They were just a, kind of a dumpster fire. and that Sounds familiar. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> there, there was Cotton Fitzsimmons. He was another name that was thrown around. Uh, no confirmation of whether or not there was a uh, job offer there. Cotton Fitzsimmons, one hell of a coach, by the way. He did yeah. win the year, uh, I want to say, in 1989 with Phoenix. But in any case, uh, Jack McCloskey uh, does eventually offer the job to Chuck Daly. He accepts, and everyone is expecting – daily to bring in this this defensive uh, attitude to a, a Pistons team that had a lot of offensive talent and Chuck Daly being an intelligent person uh, understands that you don't win games with schemes you win it with talent and all of his talent was on the offensive side of the ball other than maybe Bill Lambeer so uh, he goes the other way with it he up tempos this thing and the Pistons in Chuck Daly's very first season were the number one offensive team in the entire league uh, in offensive rating. And this is a league where the Celtics with Bird and Showtime, uh, the Showtime Lakers were in their peak. And the Pistons had a more efficient offense than either of those teams. Uh, he had Isaiah Thomas running uh, picture-perfect fast breaks. We had Kelly Trapuca and John Long on the wings, uh, Terry Tyler, Cliff Levingston uh, finishing fast breaks, uh, Bill Ambeer, uh, wonderful pick-and-pop big man. The, the the Pistons just exploded in Chuck Daly's first season. Uh, they won 49 games, which is far and away more than they had won since the early 70s. And they were a top four seed uh, in the East. Uh, Chuck Daly was, uh, 
he came in runner up uh, to coach for coach of the year in his, his first full season as a head coach in the NBA. Just an outstanding season uh, for him. And I, I think from that point, I think the Detroiters for the for the most part were sold on Chuck Daly. I don't think that anyone ever wanted anyone else uh, to coach Isaiah Thomas other than other than Chuck Daly. Yeah, I mean Chuck brought a, an identity here. It's something that no coach had really done before. And it wasn't even the identity people anticipated. I think they were just happy to to win games. And Chuck was saying that whole first season, look, I'm a defensive coach, but I'm not an idiot, right? This team has a lot of offensive talent and a one of the most dynamic point guards uh, ever. We if we're going to win games, we we need to be able to outscore people and that's what he did. Uh, that's what a good coach does. They don't force players to fit a scheme that doesn't fit their talents. They mold the scheme to maximize what their players do best. And 1985, uh, it's it's more and better. They don't. I don't think they won quite as many games in 1985 as they did in 84. But what they did do was they swept the first round series. It's the first time they had done that in Detroit. Uh, absolutely uh, gave the Celtics a, a hell of a battle in uh, the round two of the playoffs, even though they lost. This was kind of the year that people figured out the Detroit Pistons had arrived. And the Philadelphia 76ers took notice because after 1985, the the Sixers were offering Chuck Daly a a pretty substantial pay raise to leave Detroit and come to Philadelphia. The problem was he was still under contract and Detroit, the, the Pistons, would not allow him to leave, but they also weren't willing to pay him what Philly was offering to pay him, which I thought was very unfair to to Chuck Daly at the time. Yeah. But the the issue is that look, Chuck knew exactly what he had with Isaiah Thomas and all of the and Vinnie Johnson and all the other talented players on that team. E- even though the the money was probably more lucrative, he could easily see that the Pistons were a team on the way up and the Sixers were a team on the way down. So even though he did try to leave, it was hard for him to to leave the Pistons because the Pistons were were the thing that was making him a national name. He wasn't a name before the Pistons. The the the, the games that he were, that he was winning in Detroit was they they were making him a national brand. So he was parlaying that into commercials and a lot of other things even though the Pistons management weren't necessarily rewarding him financially. I think the way that they should have. Does this include the Dunham's commercial? The legendary oh, the Dunham's, Dunham's the commercial. Ford commercials. Uh, yeah, Chuck Daly was all over. <laughs> I know he did some suit commercials, of course. Yeah, Chuck Daly did every. If you were willing to pay Chuck Daly to do a commercial, <laughs> he he would show up and do the commercial. Uh, they, they called him Daddy Rich for a reason. Yeah. He would not pass up a, a, a an opportunity to make to make a few bucks. All right, so 1986, and this is the interesting thing, because this is the one time in Chuck Daly's career where I think he was on the hot seat because the Pistons started out so poorly, as we covered in the Joe Dumars episode uh, a few weeks ago. Pistons started out extremely poorly that season. Uh, they, were, they were expected to do so much after advancing the playoffs, and they were close to being out of the top eight uh, around January. And this is when Chuck Daly makes, I think, his ballsiest decision ever, which was to install a rookie next to Isaiah Thomas in the backcourt by the name of Joe Dumars. Uh, when when more established veterans like Vinnie Johnson and John Long were 
still able to play and we're right there. He, he installs a rookie and he tells everyone else to, to deal with it. And that is Isaiah Thomas's backcourt mark partner for the rest of his career. It was just a perfect match. And it's easy to say now that that was the right decision. It took a lot of balls for Chuck Daly to do that, especially in a season where the, the papers were starting to write some things about his seat possibly being warm if the, if the Pistons uh, don't make the playoffs in 1986. Because of uh, his decision, they do make the playoffs. They get blown out in the first round. And I think this is when things start to change for the better. Uh, but that was... I think that should be noted because that was another mark of, I think, Daly's uh, coaching brilliance. Now, you told me in 1987, we had the quintessential Chuck Daly game. Oh, 88. 89. We'll get there, Keith. (laughs) Tell, (laughs) Tell me about 1987. Okay, so 1987... Uh, this is what I think you see the, the brilliance of uh, Chuck Daly, the manager. Uh, the first, well, all three offseason acquisitions. Uh, look, Chuck Daly wasn't the GM. He wasn't the guy making the decisions. But I can promise you that he pushed for each of these. Uh, the first move was to draft John Sally and then Dennis Rodman. And both of those guys were defensive forwards, which is the thing that Chuck Daly wanted. That was his he was a defensive coach. He wanted more defensive forwards, and he got them. Uh, he be, he became uh, a very motivational force for John Sally. Uh, he would always uh, needle him and, and threaten to trade him when Sally uh, was playing particularly unmotivated basketball, and it would always get John Sally to kick into gear when he needed it. Uh, as far as Dennis Rodman goes, uh, it has been well documented that Chuck Daly was basically a father figure to Dennis Rodman. Uh, why that is, I'm not 100% sure. I can only say that uh, being that Chuck Daly was in, the one in control of the minutes, he, he was essentially the key to Dennis Rodman realizing his dream of being a pro basketball player. So he was going to do everything he could to please Chuck Daly. And Rodman being a coach's dream, which is I tell you to do something and you do it regardless of, of what is asked of you, uh, he he absolutely loved Dennis Rodman. I, there, there were stories where where Rodman would bring uh, would show up on Christmas with presents for for Daly and spend some time with his family. He was that close of a relationship, and I I think that there's a lot there's a lot of reason to believe that uh, you could definitely derive some of uh, Dennis Rodman's defensive player of the year awards for playing for Chuck Daly because he just played his ass off for Daly. Rodman was a, a a head case for every other coach that he played for, but he would never disrespect Chuck Daly. Uh, he just demanded that ultimate respect from him. I thought they had a, a, a remarkable relationship with each other. Yeah, I think it was. I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, Daly seemed to be the only guy who could really get through to to Dennis. Well, I, Phil Jackson, I guess you could add that as well. But then again, Dennis did leave to go do WCW Nitro during the playoffs. So I don't know. But. It, the, the other move, of course, was uh, trading Kelly Trapuca for Adrian Dantley, which I'm sure uh, Chuck Daly applauded. His comment was, I thought this was very interesting, that it would make us, the Pistons, much better defensively. Because Adrian Dantley has always been a one-dimensional scorer, or has seen that way. And it, it's interesting the way that Daly thought about it, because Adrian Dantley was very much a half-court player. He's, he's He gives you the ability to control the pace of a game. 
And Chuck Daly's goal for that offseason was to make the Pistons a much better defensive team. And they absolutely uh, they absolutely did. They went from being a bottom 10 defense in 1986 to being in the top five in 1987. They won 52 games. They went to the conference finals. We all know they lost to Boston uh, for a number of tragic reasons we won't go into. Uh, but once again, this was an exceptional job by Chuck Daly. Uh, 1988, uh, a little bit more of the same. Uh, Chuck Daly signs that offseason. Chuck Daly signs a three-year extension, not for the money, once again, that he wants, but it comes with an escape clause that allows him to leave uh, in, a, I think, a two-week window every offseason to avoid his contract and go somewhere else. And that is always... That, that kind of hung over uh, his time with the Pistons uh, for the remainder of his career there. Uh, the, the Pistons jumped from being top five to being uh, the second-ranked defense in the NBA, the sixth-ranked offense in the NBA. Uh, not, not only is he uh, now seen as one of the elite coaches in the league, uh, his assistants are now getting head coaching jobs. Like Chuck Daly develops a coaching tree. Uh, Dick Harder... Uh, he was previously a uh, Chuck Daly assistant. He he gets the job with the Charlotte Hornets as an expansion coach. Uh, after the 88 season, uh, Ron Rothstein becomes, he leaves and he becomes the very first head coach of the Miami Heat. Uh, Dick Versace, a year later, becomes the head coach of the Indiana Pacers. Like, it's weird because Chuck Daly being the fourth or fifth uh, choice for the Pistons, all of a sudden his assistants uh, five years later, are now getting head coaching jobs because of the, the amount of respect that he commands. I thought that was interesting. All right, now can we talk about the quintessential Chuck Daly game? Yes, yes, we can. Uh, right. This is this to me is is my favorite Chuck Daly game of all time. I would wager to bet that a lot of the Pistons might that played on those hit for for him might think the same way. All right. Allow me to set the stage. March 3rd, 1989. A lot of people don't realize this, but the, the Cavaliers were the superior team to the Pistons that first championship season for two-thirds of the year. Uh, at, at the two-thirds mark, 54 games in, the Cavs were five games up on the Pistons in the standings. Uh, they had already beaten the Pistons. They were 3-0 against the Pistons uh, uh, going into that game at the Palace. They had owned the Pistons. They were clearly the best team in the league. And this was supposed to be the moment where the Pistons, having just acquired Mark Aguirre, that they start, uh, that they begin their championship push. And it really doesn't turn out that way. Uh, the teams kind of trade punches, some literally, some figuratively, in the first half. Um, and in the third quarter, the Cavs uh, start to take over they erase the Detroit lead they're start they're starting to pull ahead by I think four five six points and Chuck Daly just out of nowhere and this is a soft call he just decides to blow up at the very next call that he sees that's against the Pistons so that's exactly what happens I think it was a Mahorn and Doherty foul or it was just a light struggle and the referee calls a foul on on the Pistons, and then Chuck Daly just blows up and gets himself ejected. And it riles the crowd up. It riles his team up. And everyone, look, everyone listening thinks this is where I'm going with this, that he gets himself ejected on purpose, classic coach move. The, the, the Pistons are motivated. They get fired up, and they come back to win, and all that happens. But, but here's another thing. 
during the game in the second half, uh, Matt Dobek, who's the PR director of the Pistons, is getting phone calls near the bench from the sideline. And he's answering the calls, and then he's hanging up the phone, and then he's going up to Brandon's, Brendan Sir, who was the assistant coach now filling in for Chuck Daly as the head coach, and he's giving him advice on how to finish the game. Uh, Matt Dobak, uh, rest in peace, wonderful, wonderful man, has no business uh, <laughs> coaching an NBA basketball team. So I think everyone can put one and one together, uh, what was going on in the sidelines <laughs> with, with Matt Dobak getting phone calls and then talking to Brennan Sir and Isaiah Thomas on the sidelines and then going back and getting another phone call. <laughs> Basically, uh, it, it was never proven, obviously, but uh, Chuck Daly uh, was basically circumventing his own ejection by phoning in instructions outside the arena. Uh, but yeah, it was, I, I can't remember if the NBA find him or not. The NBA did investigate that. I think he did get fined a little bit, but he was making so much money. I, I think it was worth it to him because not only did the Pistons win that game, but that game turns around uh, their dynamic with the Cavs. They, they erased that big deficit with the Cavs within a couple of weeks. They win the division. They have the best record in the league. They go on to win the championship and they beat the Cavs uh, the following two meetings after that in the regular season. That's just craziness. Just, I mean, you could not, you couldn't pull something off like that today. Uh, you, no, you, 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 you really just could not. Uh, the eighties, man, it was a wild, wild west in basketball. <laughs> That's that is that is hilarious. Well, uh, as you mentioned, they do get past the Cavs, and uh, they're going to go on and they're going to win their first championship this year. Yeah, beat beat uh, the Lakers I, I... in the finals. Yep, I, I do want to mention this is also where the Jordan rules come into play. Uh, their their own special strategy against uh, Michael Jordan, which I think a lot of that you can credit Brendan Malone for. He was Chuck Daly's defensive uh, ace on the bench. Uh, father of the the current championship head coach for the Nuggets, Mike Malone. I did not know uh, that. But, wow, that's, that's yeah. the first time I'm learning this. All right, so... The Pistons go on. They they win their first championship. They win the second championship. Uh, Chuck Daly, who is still stuck on a a good but not great contract, he knows he can't leave for another team. Uh, so he flirts with NBC. He actually threatens to leave to become a commentator for NBC unless the Pistons give him a pay raise. Uh, and a lot of people think that like. I have tape of Peter Vesey going on and uh, talking to George Blaha and saying he thinks that Chuck Daly is gone uh, to NBC because they'll offer him more money than the Pistons will. And of course that doesn't happen. He doesn't actually go to NBC. He does uh, sign a, a brief, I think one year extension with the Pistons to return. But, but that, that is kind of the, where the story ends uh, because once the bad boys start to fall apart and it's clear there's no exit plan, there's no uh, plan to re to reboot the team, the, the Pistons are on their way down. Uh, Chuck Daly, who has loved all nine seasons uh, of his time in Detroit, he doesn't see a, a path forward either. And he's kind of probably sick of being sick of being underappreciated by management. He leaves for the New Jersey Nets, uh, and it, he left at just the right time because the Pistons, having made the playoffs every year of his tenure there, 
uh, missed the playoffs the next three seasons. Yeah, I mean, the Pistons were obviously, you know, Isaiah's body was starting to fall apart a little bit. Bills was too, and yeah, they were just not the, they lost Mahorn. They, there was a bunch of things that that went down to cause the Pistons to to kind of go into that that slump of the 90s that uh, the Sean Elliott era that Keith remember, remembers so fondly. Uh, so in New Jersey, he uh, he had the opportunity to coach um, one of the original great foreign players of the league, Drazen Petrovic. Um, and unfortunately, oh, go ahead. Well, I, I, I want to segue into that because the very first, he had seen Drazen Petrovic before in the 1990 finals uh, as, a, as a reserve. But I, I think what really sold him is coaching the dream team. Uh, coaching against Petrovic. And I think this is really the highlight of Daly's coaching career uh, was be- having the honor of being named the head coach of the very, very first dream team. And it's interesting because I think coach uh, Mike Krzyzewski, who was uh, obviously a, a great coach, even then he was back-to-back NCAA champion uh, with Duke, but he was almost in awe of Chuck Daly because Chuck Daly, uh, he credits Chuck Daly a lot. Uh, with showing him how to manage players and not overcoach, that the very first day he just he wiped off the all the X's and O's off the blackboard. He said, "Look, these are grown men. These are men that are the best at what they do. Our job is to not get in their way. Our job is to, uh, if something comes up uh, personally, uh, we we will deal with it. Our job is just to manage minutes and and allow them to be the best version of themselves." And and Chuck Daly. Everyone on that team swears by the job that Chuck Daly did because he had so many egos to manage. It, a lot like Phil Jackson, <laughs> uh, it gets credit for managing egos. Chuck Daly was just as good as that. But Chuck Daly went his entire dream team career with that uh, that one year with the U.S. national team. Never called a single timeout. Not once. <laughs> it's the, the United States, look it up. The United States not once ever called a timeout in in 1992 they were that much better than everybody else but i think it was also a sign that daly was not going to allow his ego uh to get in the way of the greatest basketball team ever assembled he wasn't going to overthink anything he wasn't going to overreact uh he was going to just put the players in positions to succeed and watch them succeed Uh, you can think that it's easy to coach that much talent uh, but there is definitely an art to it uh I just have a small little message for the Daly family. And if you guys are listening and you have tapes of that college team facing the dream team, please send them uh, to send them in care of, of, of Mike Payton or Keith Black Trudeau to bad boys and beyond. Thank you. I've been dying to see that. We probably never will, but yeah. Uh, so he coaches the dream team to a gold medal, which I don't uh, think anybody was surprised by that <laughs> against uh, Croatia and draws yeah. Petrovic. Yeah. Uh, everyone was obsessed with Tony Kukoc uh, and his possible path to the Bulls, but Drazen Petrovic uh, was the best player in that team. Uh, I don't think it was close. Um, so he he does get some experience coaching against him and seeing what Petrovic can do as, as a focal point. And, and Petrovic under Daly has the best year of his career. Uh, he, he makes the All-NBA uh, third team, I believe. Uh, the Nets make the playoffs, and sadly, that's where Petrovich's story ends because he dies tragically in a car accident that summer. Yeah. And 
although the Nets do make it to the playoffs, uh, the, the following year under Chuck Daly, uh, I, I think the, the desire to keep coaching them was kind of drained out of him where he saw like this team can't go any further than this. Uh, Kenny Anderson and, and Derek Coleman are good, but they're not going to carry us to the top of the East. This isn't really fun for me anymore. Uh, Chuck Daly was in his mid sixties at that point. And so uh, he essentially walks away. Uh, I think he had a three-year, yeah, something like a three-year, $4 million contract, and he walks away from that third year. He just had no desire to keep doing it. Now, this this is interesting because the following year, 95, uh, the Knicks, having lost Pat Riley to the Miami Heat, they hired Don Nelson to replace him, and Don Nelson just not a fit in New York at all. They fire him after a few months, and they go to Chuck Daly, and they offer him I forgot what was reported, but it was a ton of money. It was by far the most money that he had ever been offered to coach. And Chuck Daly kind of turns it down. He He's kind of satisfied where he is. He he had already seen how the New York media treated Don Nelson, who was himself a Hall of Fame coach. I don't think that he felt that it was the best thing for him personally in his life. Uh, but people... Uh, that's another thing about Chuck Daly that people don't know is that the Jeff Van Gundy era in New York almost never happened. Uh, they they wanted Chuck Daly to be that guy to coach the Knicks for the rest of the nineties. And I think it's great, better for everybody that they went with Van Gundy because Chuck Daly is not going to grab Alonzo morning's leg uh, in the middle of a fist fight. We would never have gotten that moment. No, no, I'm glad that we got that moment. Thank you, Chuck. But he is uh, he he is not done coaching in the NBA though he he will have one more stop and that is with the Orlando Magic. Yeah, so the Orlando Magic, much more laid back organization, not as much pressure to win. Uh, they had already lost Shaquille O'Neal several years earlier, so they were stuck in mediocrity. Uh, they offer to give Chuck Daly the job. Uh, they offer him $15 million over three years, which in 1998 money, that is way, way, way more than like, any. I, I don't know if he was the highest page coach in the league. I'm pretty sure Phil Jackson was, but he was in the top five. And I'm pretty sure that's the only reason he took the job. But that doesn't mean that he didn't put everything into it. He absolutely did. Uh, his, his final season, Chuck Daly, and I want to I want to emphasize the point. He was 68 years old. Really not in his best physical condition. Uh, the 1999 lockout uh, shortened season, the Orlando Magic, uh, with a rotation of Penny Hardaway, who was his knees were gone at that point, uh, Horace Grant, who was in his early to mid 30s, uh, Ike Austin, a career journeyman, Nick Anderson, who was uh, also in his uh, in his 30s. Not nearly the player he used to be. Also, Matt Harpering, Bo Outlaw, Daryl Armstrong. Just just a motley crew of, this is obviously a middle-of-the-road, 8th, ninth, 10th place Eastern Conference team. Not so. Uh, Chuck Daly somehow gets that group to 33-17 and 17 over a 50-game season. They are third. They finish third in the East. And Chuck Daly finishes fourth uh, in coach of the year voting, which to me is criminal. <laughs> I, I don't know how Chuck, we, we went over the list before. Jerry Sloan finished ahead of Chuck Daly for coach of the year in 1999. Jerry Sloan for what? For coaching Carl Malone and John Stockton? Like, 
I, I don't know. That, that that was just and the the thing is, the the sad irony is that uh, Doc Rivers takes over for Chuck Daly and coaches a similar team without Penny Hardaway, who wasn't wasn't really that good, and he he misses the playoffs with the Magic the next year, and he wins Coach of the Year. I uh I I don't know if I'll ever get over that. That was just. It's a real shame that Chuck Daly's final season, because he never won Coach of the Year. Right. I I thought he absolutely deserved it that final season with Orlando. Did a fantastic job, but he walks away for good this time, and he does. I, he's mostly retired. Uh, he does a little bit of uh, broadcasting, does some interviews every now and then. Uh, in two thousand four, which I'm really happy he got to see the Pistons get back to the finals. They had Chuck Daly uh, do local media prominently. He had him do pregames. Uh, Chuck Daly seemed as excited about <laughs> the resurgence of the Pistons as anybody else. And that was, I thought that was really great because uh, Chuck Daly uh, passes away in 2009, five years after the Pistons win their third championship. Uh, but that is that is essentially the, the story of Chuck Daly. Yeah, I mean, absolutely legend and and will always be you know somebody who's remembered fondly here in detroit and you know not a lot of guys can say they they helped coach championship teams in the city of detroit there's really only a handful there's chuck daly uh larry brown scotty bowman uh whoever the manager of the tigers was in 1984 i don't remember uh but there's not there's there's, there's not a whole lot, you know, so he's, he's definitely in the pantheon of some of the greatest coaches that ever came through. And I think he's one of the greatest coaches of all time, just in general. Um, now I, I, I guess usually at the end of these episodes, when we cover somebody, we ask what their legacy is and, and if they can play in, in the NBA today. But, uh, I think we know Chuck's legacy would, would Chuck's coaching philosophies work in the NBA today? You know, I'm going to go as far as to say any great coach, uh, I think their philosophy would work in any generation. Because the one thing that all great coaches have in common is that great coaches are adaptable. And I think Chuck Daly definitely showed that. He starts out with a Detroit Pistons team that's all offense. And then as the personnel changes, he adapts them into one of the greatest defensive teams of all time. And I, I think that's really the the legacy of Chuck Daly. Uh, wonderful coach. Uh, began his NBA coaching career, really, we're not counting Cleveland. Uh, he begins his NBA coaching journey as a, as a head man at age 55, coaches 13 full seasons, again, not counting Cleveland. He finishes top 10 in coach of the year voting in 10 of them out of 13. Out of, it, that's all he coached was 13 seasons, really, 13 full seasons. And he did an outstanding job almost every everywhere he went he, he was just fantastic and he had different personnel he had personalities all sorts of egos that he had to manage he was not only a good X's and O's guy he was one of the greatest uh managers of players of all time he is the pistons this goes without saying pistons all-time winning this coach in the regular season and the playoffs but the nba has recognized him twice over uh in their 50th anniversary celebration of 1997 he made their top 10 coaches list and when the nba did their top 75 list a year ago he made the top he made their list of the top 15 coaches of all time i don't think there's any 
player, any coach that's ever uh, had anything to do with Chuck Daly that's had anything negative to say about uh, the way that he coaches. Uh, it was just, and not only that, all the coaches that that coached under him just swear by him. Uh, Brendan Malone, Brendan Sir, Dick Harder, Ron Rothstein. Uh, the, the list goes on. It wasn't just those guys, but the list goes on. And I, I think that's the reason why the the number two. And, and look, we can go back and forth on whether or not the a number should be retired in honor of a coach. I understand. I, I think it's great that the Daly family gave the blessing, their blessing to Kate Cunningham to wear number two. But I also hope that Kate Cunningham understands what that number means. Yeah. And that the, the greatest coach probably that the Pistons will ever have uh, wore that number or were, well, was represented by that number. Yeah. I mean, by all accounts, he, you know, he certainly does seem to understand it. Um, you know, that we, we don't know what's happening behind a player's eyes or whatever, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a very big deal for the daily family to allow him to do that. And, um, and so far, you know, I know it's only been two years and some people have soured on Cade for some unbelievable reasons. Uh, but I think he's representing it pretty well. And uh, he's clearly the future of this team. So uh, that's going to wrap up the Chuck daily episode. We want to thank everybody for listening again this week. We've got a another big episode coming up next week with a guest, one of our favorites, Bryce Simon from the Pistons Pulse and uh, Motor City Hoops. Very, very excited to have him on. He was on uh, for a previous draft, uh, a, a basketball expert, the, maybe the second or third tallest guy that we've had on the show. Um, and we'll continue that for, for a little while here until we, we can wrangle up a center. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't want to get too excited about anything and I'm not going to announce anything, but we may have something very big coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, huge actually. So we'll, we'll keep you posted on that. Don't get too excited yet. Um, but something big could be coming here in a couple weeks. Uh, until then, we'll see you next week when we do the 2010 NBA draft.